Lights, Camera, Asia. A look at Asian culture and history through the lens of cinema. Hello and welcome to Lights, Camera, Asia. In the next few weeks, I am to cover a genre of Asian movies that is as popular as it is misunderstood: the martial art movies. The genre was arguably first popularized by stars like Bruce Lee, and later on by Jackie Chan. Their movies dazzled the audience around the world with their fancy hand-to-hand combat moves and acrobatic stunts. And the stars in these movies certainly benefited from the genre's rising popularity, and became household names themselves. Later on, Western movies began to adopt the element of martial art in them as well. In movie franchises like the Matrix trilogy and the more recent Marvel universe, heroes and villains are seen engaging in well-choreographed fights and stunts all the time. But like I said earlier. This genre is as popular as it is misunderstood, and here's why: as the genre evolves over time, martial artists on screen showcase increasingly superhuman feats, such as wall climbing and bully dodging, such as the Matrix movies. What is worrying about this is that the genre leans more and more on action tropes, while less and less screen time is left to build the characters of the martial artists. It is as if their existence within the movie is solely to showcase their action and entertain the audience, and nothing else is there to validate their existence. They are effectively reduced to the stunts they perform. Now, if we look at the real-world environment in which martial artists inhabit, we would get a much more human perspective on them. Most of the time, those who excel in the craft of self-defense or combat have a reason for it. Historically, in China, peasants learned martial arts to defend themselves and to protect their lands. Police and bodyguards learned the skill to be able to handle potential harm associated with their occupations. In ancient Japan, armed and hand-to-hand combat is part of bushido, or the way of the samurai. And these servants of different clans and warlords had to learn it to defend their masters and to defeat others in turf wars. No matter what their background is, combat is just a small part of their lives of these martial art practitioners. And just like us, they deal with all sorts of headaches and challenges on their jobs and in their families for the majority of their time. And also just like us, they fret over rent and food. Fall in love and experience heartbreaks, and try their best to raise their children. These everyday events are what makes people human, but unfortunately, they have little presence、uh, in martial art movies. Most of these movies boil down to tales of revenge or warfare that have been told and rehashed for easily thousands of times. So. Now that we are done with my lengthy introduction/slash genre analysis, you must be wondering, just what are the films that we're going to look at? Well, there are going to be two. The first one is called *Twilight Samurai* from Japan, and the second one is *The Grand Master* from China. Both movies are highly acclaimed by critics and audiences alike, and more importantly, they're praised for the right reasons. 
They don't stand above their peers with fancy actions, but rather with their vivid depiction of the world and the culture in which the martial artists inhabit. Let us start with *The Twilight Samurai*, directed and co-written by renowned filmmaker Yuji Yamada. This historical drama, released in 2002, tells the story of Iguchi Saibe, a poor lower-class samurai who had just lost his wife to tuberculosis at the beginning of the film, and he is now struggling to make ends meet. During the day, Saibe works as an accountant, and he documents the quantity of dry fish and rice in his clan's warehouse. In the evenings. He stays home and makes bamboo ornaments with his two daughters in hopes to sell them for extra cash. Clearly, his eager pay is not enough to support the two girls as well as his demented mother. Within the first 15 minutes of the film, the director skillfully stages many small and almost mundane moments of the protagonist's daily life to portray the image of a samurai who is down on his luck. Yet still maintains his virtues and dignity. When Seibe works in a shabby warehouse, we can see his decrepit clothing and messy hair, as well as his toes sticking out of his worn-out socks. In fact, the movie's title, *Twilight Samurai*, is also Seibe's nickname, coined by his colleagues when they mock him for rushing home every day at twilight instead of joining others for a drink. Which is expected according to etiquette at Japanese workplaces. When we look inwards at Seibe's family, we see something entirely different. We can see that his two daughters have a great amount of respect for him, despite their financial hardship. The opening narration, which is from one of his daughters now in her adult years, says that no matter how hard life is. She and her sister always had a great deal of happiness in their father's presence, and this is also the emotional core of the movie, which is a sense of inner stillness and bliss despite rapid outward changes and hardship. So Sebe's life moves along with little drama, until one day Sebe's childhood friend Tomoe returns to town. She was different from many other traditional Japanese women at the time, in that she didn't confine herself with all the customs and etiquette, and she had just run away from her drunk, abusive husband, which is a very gutsy move at the time for a woman. Tomoe finds comfort in the company of Seibei's daughters, and Seibei himself is quite content to once again be in the company of a delightful and cultured young woman. However, the good days didn't last for too long before troubles come knocking at his door. Koda, Tomoe's former husband, comes looking for her one day when he's clearly inebriated. Seibei stepped in a duel between Koda and Tomoe's bigger brother, and offers to fight Koda with not a katana or Japanese sword, but just with a wooden stick in hopes of not harming him. Koda feels greatly insulted and charges at Seibei. Left with no choice, Seibei, the lower-class samurai who's looked down upon by many of his peers, finally shows his combat skills. In but a few moves, he stopped Koda with his wooden stick and eventually knocked him unconscious when Koda tries to kill him. Tomoe's older brother Inuma 
has known Sebe for a long time, and Sebe's latest act of heroism further solidifies his trust in him. He asks Sebe to marry his younger sister and tells him that she has turned down many offers since she has her heart set on him. However, Sebe turns down the offer since she worries that she could not provide a comfortable life for Tomoe. This is an emotional blow for both Tomoe and Sebe, and the two grow estranged for a while. Later on, the higher officials of Sebe's clan gives him an important assignment. They have gotten wind of Sebe's brief display of his outstanding swordsmanship, and they've asked him to kill Yogo, a samurai that had been disowned by the clan during an early conflict, who disobeyed orders to conduct seppuku, or the ritual of cutting one's bow open. As absolutely horrific as it sounds to us in this day and age, seppuku was considered the only honorable way to die after samurai is defeated in battle or disowned by his own clan. Sebe is very reluctant towards the mission since it means to risk his own life and not to mention the possibility of not seeing his daughter grow up. He asked the clan's officials to give him some time to prepare, but they were furious that a low-ranking samurai would even make such a demand. Sebe is eventually pushed to a corner and left with no choice when the officials insist on having him go forward with the mission. He returns to his home and asks Tomoe to dress him up before the duel, which is a common ritual for samurais before they head into battle. In the subsequent scene is a calm yet heartbreaking conversation between the two. Sebe tells her that he regrets turning down the marriage offer and he would like to tie the knot with her if he makes it back. Tomoe tells him, with tears in her eyes and tremble in her voice, that he had already agreed to marry into another family. Sebe feels greatly embarrassed and he retracts his proposal and heads into battle. When he finds Yogo, his opponent, he sees a strange mirror version of himself. Yogo, who is now a ronin or an estranged samurai, has also been financially stranded for years and he lost his daughter to tuberculosis, the same disease that took Sebe's wife. The two had a brief conversation and Sebe at one point is willing to let Yogo go in his own way. However, the pride of a samurai gets into Yogo's head and he still tries to kill Sebe. In a brief but bloody duel, Sebe took advantage of the confined space in the house and kills Yogo with his shorter but more maneuverable sword. Sebe returns home, and to his most pleasant surprise, he finds Tomoe waiting for him at the house. The two unite, however, they didn't get to share the remainder of their life together. In her narration, Sebe's daughter said her father died three years later in the Boshun War, which was Japan's last civil war in which samurais fought against the modernized Japanese army. Sebe's life ended with the end of the samurai era. This is a bittersweet tale filled with twists and turns, and we have barely scratched the surface. In the following weeks, We'll dive deeper into the film and talk about how the director deploys a unique blend of cinematography, 
set design and dialogue to paint this vivid portrait of that era. But more importantly, we will look into the culture and customs of this era in order to better understand the weight and complexity of the stories and the characters in it. I can't wait to talk to you about it in next week's show. For Lights Camera Asia, I'm Jake Chan. Talk to you next week.